Take up your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that will be on page 1030, 1030. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, of which that is as well. We'll continue our study in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters here this morning, and we're taking a look at the throne in heaven, or as the title of the sermon is, the throne room. Here now... The reading of the Lord's word, Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what may take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold a throne stood in heaven with the one seated on the throne... And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there as there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive power, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to sing, to pray, and now to hear from you. We ask for your grace upon our time of study. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. World War II, German occupation in the Netherlands. Some of you probably have heard the name Cory Ten Boom. There in the Netherlands, seeking to stand for what was right, she and her family took in those who were under persecution, the Jewish people. And ultimately, that would land Cory Ten Boom in a concentration camp where she would lose her sister. And even, as it were, that found out many years later, after she was released, she was released on clerical error. She was a step or two away from the gas chamber and her death, and the Lord spared her. She would go on after the war to be a sought-after speaker, where she would speak about what had taken place with her family and under occupation and even persecution in a concentration camp. And one of the things that she would do is she would 
take up with her to the place she would speak. She would take uh, an analogy. She would take something to help the congregation or the people that she was speaking to connect to what she was saying. She would hold up this piece of cloth with threads all over the place of all different colors and a mess and a tangle. And as she would talk about all of this tangled threads and what was happening and all of the mess that seems to be made of life. Many would think that she was holding the wrong side of the the cloth and then she would triumphantly flip it over and you've probably heard this. And on the other side is this beautiful piece of embroidery where all the threads were connected and all the colors were just right. And it made sense. Everything was in its place. And she would say this, quote, In our lives we see the wrong side, but God sees his side all the time. One day we shall see the embroidery from his side and thank him for every answered and unanswered prayer. Although the threads of my life have often seemed knotted, I know by faith that on the other side of the embroidery there is a crown. When we think about Revelation chapter 4 this morning, This is in a way what we're thinking about. We have a pre-screening, if you will. We've gone to the dress, we're going to the dress rehearsal, if you like. We, we have, uh, if you will, the analogy of going into the control tower. On the tarmac, there seems to be planes coming in and out and parking here and there and people running all about. And it makes no sense. And then you ascend into the control tower and you look down and there's this picture of why it all is the way it is. How it's all working together. Where it's headed. The control that is actually going on amidst what seems to be chaos when you're on the other side. Even for us this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 4. As we looked at it as a church. uh, We're looking at it as a church that always needs this as our vision. You may remember a few weeks ago we took a look at Revelation chapter 1 and the vision of Christ over the church and in the church. We took a look a week later at Revelation chapter 2 and specifically the church of Smyrna. And we talked about how these seven churches and specifically focused on one ultimately needed to see Christ in the midst of them and with a message for them. And here these churches are under persecution, under tribulation, And after getting the specific word from Christ to the church, what does the word of God want them to see? It is Revelation chapter 4. He, Christ, wanting them to understand what is above them, if you will. What is controlling all that is going on within their specific churches. And we get this peeling back of the curtain. A vision of reality, if you will. What is actually taking place in all its wonder and glory. A vision that was given specifically to John, but by his grace is even a vision for the church. Well, whenever we open the book of Revelation, automatically questions come. What about this number? What about that picture? What about this and what about that? And let me just put your mind to rest. I'm not going to answer many of those questions. Uh, we don't have uh, the entire, we don't have the time to, to delve too deeply in that. And those are good questions to be asked. But let me encourage us this morning maybe to take a, a bit of a step back and see the bigger picture. And we may not be able to connect all of the dots as to what does this represent or what does that represent. 
But I think it's very clear from scripture for us this morning that we can get the message of Revelation chapter 4. And what the word, what the Holy Spirit desires that we gain from the word this morning. Now, when we take a look at Revelation 4, uh, the next question, at least for me, the preacher, is how to best organize this material in an understanding way. And typically what we do is we go verse by verse. And we're going to do that this morning, but we're going to take it more in sections. So if you will, this morning, we'll take it in three different points. We're going to look first at the throne, which is verse 1 through 3, if you're looking at your Bible, and also verse 5 and 6. So we'll put four to the side for a moment in point number one and just look at the throne. Then the next thing we'll do is we'll take a look at the attendants around the throne. And that's verse four and six and eight. And finally, we'll look at the worship around the throne, which is verse eight, nine through eleven. The throne. Point number one. Notice here. A few things. One would be this voice that is speaking to John is the voice of Christ. We can find that in chapter 1 verse 10. He is, there's this door that is opening. It's a, it's a, it's a symbol of something behind the door. There's something more and it's open and he can see. And if you've read C.S. Lewis, this might call to mind a door opening where there's more behind that they cannot see. The door opens and the voice speaks. This is Christ speaking to John, calling him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And that after this is really pertaining to this part of Revelation 4 all the way through the end of the book, Revelation 22 verse 5. Come up here, John, and let me show you what's currently taking place now and what's still to come, culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ. It must be noted here that the only way John has the ability to go into the throne room, behold God, is through Christ. It's the truth that is the reality across the New Testament, even into the Old. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now there's this in the Spirit The Holy Spirit, the triune God at present here. We have Christ calling. We have the Spirit giving him the ability to see, guiding this vision, ultimately to see God the Father. Verse 2, we begin to see this throne. Behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of. Automatically, the questions may come to mind. Where's the detail? Don't give me appearance of or looked like. Can you give me specific? It's not there. We have the appearance of Jasper. Appearance of Carnelian. There was a, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of. Ultimately, verse 5 and 6. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne there was as it were. Ultimately, what we have to understand here is God is infinite. We, we cannot grasp him in his awesome nature. He's beyond and above and unable to be grasped by a human mind. And yet we have here, by the grace of God, the ability to see him revealed and trusted. 
had faith in, peace in, trustworthy, and yet there's an inability to grasp him. This throne and God who sits upon the throne is beyond our ability to understand. This jasper, what is it? Well, it's the color of white or translucent. You could find that in Revelation 21, verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Carnelian's the color of red, emeralds green. There's this rainbow. Is it a circle of green or is it a rainbow bunch of different colors? It's not very clear. Ultimately, though, what we have here is a picture of one who is mighty, picture of one who is all glorious, who is powerful, who is beyond our ability to describe in all his glory. And yet one who we shall one day see and currently sits on the throne even now. I've used the analogy or the the story before and we'll use it many more times because I believe it's very helpful from Lewis's children's book, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. And it's that scene there where the children are, where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're describing this mighty lion, which in the story is Jesus Christ, but applies here as well to God the Father. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Sternly, Certainly not. I tell you, he's king of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslam without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. This is the picture that we have. We have this rainbow how do we understand what that looks like? We, we can't. And yet it hearkens or should call us back to Genesis chapter 9. Where we see God putting the bow in the heavens after the flood of Noah. And his judgment over sin. And they're dis- displaying for the world, all of history to come, his mercy. Even here, his glory and yet his mercy displayed in the throne room. Verse 5, we have these lightnings and thunder. We can think about what happened on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. Where Moses goes up onto this mountain and there's these, this lightning and these thunder and the people are afraid. Last night we had a thunder and lightning storm here. Maybe you got it as well. My children came down from, or at least one of them did, the rest of them slept. One of them came down from upstairs. Why? Because it shook him. It, it made him wake up. It woke me up. It, it made me not be able to think about anything other than this noise that was much bigger than me and in all control of that which is going on around me. You know, when you go into a thunderstorm, you don't sit there and think, you know, I wonder if we're going to have dinner for dinner tonight. Uh, boy, you know, these bills are due and I, I'm not sure how we're going to... No, the, the lightning, the striking... The strike and the fear of knowing there's going to be a big boom. How big is the boom going to be? 
God in control of all creation. The glory of creation showing his magnificence. It is both an awesome place and yet a place of great peace because he's in control of all of it. Turn with me in your Bible, if you will, to the left. Daniel chapter 7. It might take you a moment, as it will me as well, to find it, but you can and would encourage you to do so. It's after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 7 gives us another view, if you will, of the throne room and the Ancient of Days that is on that throne. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Quote, Daniel, as I looked... Thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. A place of magnificence. Back in Revelation chapter 4. There's these seven torches that are around the throne. There in verse 5. Seven spirits. The seven torches probably are referring to the seven torches that are seen over in chapter 1. The churches. Seven golden lampstands. The seven spirits as also seen in chapter 1 verse 4. Simply helping us to understand the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That is not lacking in any way. He's God Triune God, third person of the Trinity. What are we to make of this sea of glass like crystal, these waters that are around the throne? There's some conjecture there. It seems maybe these, maybe these are the waters that are subdued by the sovereign creator of the universe. That he's in control of the wind and the waves as we see Christ do and Mark calming the wind and the waves. Maybe it is the provision of water from heaven to earth, supplied through God. Maybe it's the water that is used in judgment for the flood of Noah, days of Noah, or Pharaoh. Maybe it's all of those. But the creator God surrounding this throne, a sea of glass like crystal. A.W. Pink said this. Sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. Quote, sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. Ultimately, whether we get every nuance of Revelation chapter 4, what is very clear is is articulating the sovereignty of God. That there is nothing that is outside of his almighty control. And I, I, I think it's, and so would Others as well would say that the sovereignty of God is the doctrine of Scripture that the Christian must grasp in order to live at peace in this crazy life. If we, for but a moment, think that God is not sovereign over whatever you want to name, we lose our moorings. We lose our foundation. We lose our anchor. It is the sovereignty of God that He's in control of everything. Is that what holds us fast through all of these things? And really to to understand even a, a bit of the attendance that we'll look at here in just a moment. 
It's helpful to realize that, that the holy sovereign God here is the universal center of everything. And that is, everything is derived from Him. He's at the center. He's on the throne and everything comes out from Him. So for instance, here in a moment, we are to see that these attendants are to give Him worship. Well, we can understand that if God is at the center of everything, if God is light, as 1 John 1, 5 says, those who are his attendants, we, his people, are to be light to this world. It comes from him and he commands us to be in likeness to him. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God is depicted as the ruler of all things in Revelation chapter 4. But then those who are his attendants, the 24 elders, they have a throne as well. They are sitting and ruling, if you will. And even we as the church, those who are saved, are called to rule. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to take dominion. But even 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when we look here at these attendants in a moment, we'll see characteristics of God that are simply to call us to see how it's emitting from him. Point number two, the attendants. And this is in verse four and six through eight. It's not as important to understand in entirety the attendants. Whether you want to think about the elders that are mentioned here or the four living creatures. But it is vital to understand the message of the attendants and the purpose of the attendants. Verse 4, we're told that around this throne are elders. 24 thrones, seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Vern Poitras in his book on Revelation says, age goes before wisdom. And as a king would have wise men surrounding his throne... So God has wise men around his throne, not for the purpose of counseling him, but to reflect his wisdom as well. This word, this number 24 is, has some conjecture about it as well. Maybe it's the fact that the priesthood of Aaron in 1 Chronicles 24 was divided into 24 divisions. Maybe it's the 12 apostles of the church combined with the 12 tribes of Israel, stating that there's this unity of God's people. I'll leave that for you to mull on. Notice their attire though. They've got garments that are white, reflecting the purity of God, reflecting the light of God. They've got golden crowns on their heads. They've got these four living creatures in verse 6b through 8. What are these four living creatures? Full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, a, a lion, an ox, a face like a man. Eagle in flight. Six wings. Eyes all around and within. Who are these? Turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 1. 
This is on page 692. If you're using the Pew Bible, that may be helpful to you. Ezekiel chapter 1, as well as Isaiah chapter 6, give us a picture of similar creatures. For instance, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10 through 14. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. So there's four wings in Ezekiel 1. And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Could go over to Isaiah 6. Here's the vision that Isaiah has of the throne room. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. It's clear throughout Revelation as it harkens back to Old Testament passages especially. This is not as interested in, in getting all the the exact things, the exact details. It's six wings, it's four wings, but it's, it's trying to help us understand it is like this. It, it, it's not an exact copy. It didn't take the, the picture, put it on the photocopier, and make sure it looks exactly the same way. It's more as if the photograph of Isaiah or the photograph of, that Ezekiel has is put on a tripod, Whatever you want to call it, you could help me with that. And the next person steps up with a paint brush and paints as close as they can. It's uh, it's not an exact copy. I think very clearly Ezekiel one and Isaiah six are talking about the same four living creatures that are here. Ezekiel's has one face with four sides. These have four different creatures. But again, we're looking at the glory of heaven. And how can we understand this? But what are they there for? Why are they there? Well, I think it's helpful to understand that ancient kings, of which we don't quite understand, if you're to look at a picture, they would have images carved into their throne. They may have animals that would surround their throne. Creatures, either real or carved, that would depict the character trait of the king he desired to communicate to those in attendance. And in like manner, we have the same here. We have four living creatures, each distinct and unique, and yet they're otherworldly. They're not like any creature we've ever seen. Nor is God. The lion is the king of beasts. The ox is the strongest of domesticated animals. The man is ruler over all animals. The eagle is the most majestic of birds. Eyes that see all as he sees all. Again, it's just reflecting his character and his glory. And so when we think, what does it mean to have eyes within and without? It's okay. How can we comprehend the glory of God? How can we comprehend his omniscience? How can we comprehend that he knows all, sees all? 
We can't, and yet we do so in faith. The reality, even, of the statued cherubim in the Holy of Holies that we would see in the Old Testament temple is the reality that is taking place here. The existence is to worship God. That's what they're there for. Point number three, the worship. Again, it's vital to understand their message and purpose. Their purpose is to worship him. What is the message? Well, we see this in verse 8 and 9 through 11. First of all, the four living creatures in verse 8, they would never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We read Isaiah chapter 6. They're building on that. They don't just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. No, they go to his alpha and omega status. The beginning and the end. Who was and is and is to come. They promote his threefold holiness. That he's not just holy, but he's a triune holy God. He's the holiest of all holy. It is here that we must understand why then the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us that we are to pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Christ having saved us has saved us for the pursuit of being like him. He who is holy. We are not to be those who are saved and then to muddle through our lives as if we can do what we want to do. But no, to pursue the holiness of God for his glory. So thought, word, deed is not to just pass by and say, oops, there was another thing that he didn't like. No, we're to eradicate it with the idea that is in Matthew that if your hand offends you, cut it off. Speaking figuratively, that we're to pursue this. We're to hate sin. Why? Because he does and he's holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And we're to be like him in order that we might promote him to every tribe, tongue, and nation. That people might see us and say, why do you want to not have fun doing sin? Because sin is fun. I'm going to say because that's not my purpose. I'm a, crea- I'm a creation. The creator has made me to proclaim him who is holy. Notice what the four living creatures do. Excuse me, the 24 elders do. The living creatures are giving glory and honor and thanks who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You have this antiphonal choir. The four living creatures are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in response, these 24 elders are speaking, worthy are you, our Lord and God. It's going back and forth and back and forth, reverberating, bouncing back and forth, echoing one another. You could say uh, antiphonal choir. Antiphonal comes and and has this idea of an anthem. The, The heavenly anthem, if you will, is one of praise and glory to him. Worthy. Why is he worthy? Verse 11. He's worthy because he created all things. Yet again, they're his sovereignty in creation. That is the bedrock, if you will. That is the why he is to be praised. We are to worship him because he created us. You are a created being. You don't get a choice. We may think we have a choice. 
But He created you. He created us to worship Him. That, in fact, is our greatest joy. And Piper would say happiness is when we are doing what He's created us to do. Worship Him. He's the potter. We are the clay. Psalm 115.1 Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to Your name give glory. For the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why do you think Psalm 8 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God? Why do you think Psalm 8 verse 3 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Why do you think Job and his situation, when God comes and speaks to him and calls him to give an account, he he calls him to look at creation. Job 41 verse 1 through 11, he talks about Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? The sovereignty, the majesty of God rooted in him as creator. I think technology is a wonderful thing. But you need to get outside. You need to look at the stars. You need to hear the thunder. You need to go to the ocean. You need to listen to the wind and the trees. And before you thinking I'm just full of emotions and some hippiness. I'll pass through that moment. But we, we must look to creation. It is there we see the Father in all His glory. And it is there that we are called to say, who am I? If He can do all this, is there not the ability for Him to do what is needed in my life? Philippians 4, verse 5 and 6 We're called to not be anxious about anything. Why? Because of the sovereignty of God. The Lord is at hand. Verse 5, Philippians 4. The creator God in sovereign control of all things. The sovereignty of God being the doctrine most needed by believers in order to live out this life in sanity. Vern Poitras says this, Our lives are renewed through worship, through adoring the God who created us and saw fit to redeem us through the blood of the Lamb. Close quote. Is your life in need of some renewal this morning? It is found in worship. That's what you've been created to do. The current reality is, for us this morning, is that this is taking place. This throne room is real. This isn't some idea. This isn't some twist on Lewis's words. This isn't some movie. This is reality. If you believe that this is the inspired word of God and there are no mistakes in this Bible, then you must understand this is currently taking place. This God is the one reigning and ruling. Only through then belief in Christ can one be born again by the Spirit and only those born again by the Spirit can see this throne room. So the question has to be asked this morning. Have you been born again? Do you know God through Christ? If not, you will not see this. You will see the awesome power and might of this God, but it will be in judgment, not in peace. And yet the invitation is, come unto me, Matthew 11, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The God of the universe offers to us salvation through Christ alone for those who repent and believe. That can be yours today. In closing, let's go in our Bibles to the left, to Luke chapter 18. What is our response to be? Certainly to be one of worship. 
But I think it's always helpful for us when we're looking at a passage of scripture to think about application in a way of what should we be doing and what should we not be doing. We should be worshiping. But oftentimes what is getting in the way of our worship is the things we need to stop doing. Luke 18 is helpful for us on that front. You probably know the story quite well. It's this story of, this picture, this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. A publican and a sinner, your your Bible might say. Christ telling the story. Verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day. I give tithes of all that I get. It's clear. Most of us are probably the tax collector. Oh God, I thank you that I didn't worry as much yesterday as I could have worried. I I did a little bit, but... I thank you that I'm not like that person who is just full of it. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What do we need to stop? Well, I'm sure the Spirit can help you understand what may be in your life that you need to stop, that may be blocking the way of worship. But who are we to even dare, to even dare do anything but humble ourselves to bow down in worship? Who are we to even dare to be anxious or fret or worry or fear in a sinful way? Who are we to even dare worship the idols of lust or self or money or greed? Our first response should be that, first of all, of this sinner. Our first response should be one of prostration and repentance before holy God. How dare we? And then what do we see? Well, we'll see it next week in Revelation 5. We see the Lamb. We see the one who's there, who's mediated for us, who says, rise. You can, by my blood, stand in this presence, and then we worship. We do what the elders, we do what these 24 elders do. We go back to our knees, and we cast before him, and we say, oh God, it is you alone that gets all the glory. So may we do two things, even as we think about Revelation chapter 4, and it's called to us as a church for 2019. May it be two things. May we be those who are continually on our knees in repentance, and yet those who are continually on our knees in worship and giving him glory and praise. Let's not let those sins be those that fester for more than just a moment or two, but to eradicate them and to recognize that this throne room His sovereign control, His glory is what we've been made to articulate and and be about, thinking on. May that be that which transcends whatever problems may be in our lives. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this morning in Revelation chapter 4. Father, there's so much here. And yet we trust that your spirit ministers the word to each heart as needed. Some hearts needing to be humbled by this passage. Other hearts needing to be encouraged by this passage. And yet the universal call for us as your people, saved by your grace, is to be those who worship you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for saving us, for your mercy, for that rainbow that reminds us that though we sin, though we rebel, your mercy, your steadfast love, obtained and secured for us in Christ, gives us the ability to continue to come back to the reality that is this throne room and bow down yet again in worship. Have mercy on us, Father. Help us. Don't let us stray too far in our pride and our rebellion. We desire to be those who pursue holiness. We desire to be those who pursue and seek the kingdom of God and your righteousness. We desire to be those who proclaim your name and not our own. Father, we pray for this coming week. Who's to know what you have and your sovereign will for each one of us? Who's to know the struggles that are there or the victories that may come? But through all of it, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes upon you. To lift our eyes to the reality that is this throne room and your sovereign control. To look around us at your creation and be reminded that you are in charge, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are our heavenly father. We thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage this morning. May it nourish our souls for your glory. In the precious name of Christ, amen.